to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you like what you hear, please subscribe now and do leave us a review. It makes a big difference. This is Enda Scahill from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Traditional musician John Carty is widely recognised as one of the finest musicians in Ireland. A master on fiddle, tenor banjo and tenor guitar, John has recently released a new album with his son James, called the Wavy Bow Collection. To find out more about John, go to johncartymusic.net. I hope you enjoy this interview with John Carty. Well, it's a great pleasure to have fiddler and banjo player John Carty on the podcast today. Big, big fan of your music, John, and uh, you're very welcome. Great. Thanks for having me, Ender. It's a pleasure. I've seen one or two of your podcasts, notably uh, Teresa O'Grady, an old friend of mine. So uh, I like the style of your podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Teresa is wonderful. You could talk to Teresa all day. I think I could do 15 different podcasts with Teresa and they'd all be different and all an enormous amount of fun. But uh, John, give us a little bit of background um, just on yourself. I guess just to put uh, John Carty in the context of Irish music, where did you grow up? Uh, where did you learn your music? Yeah, well, I'm um, a product, I suppose, of Irish immigration from the 50s. Uh, my parents went to England and met over there. They eventually settled, they were first in Manchester and then they moved to London and uh, got married in London and our family were born in London. So I grew up and learned a lot of my music in my formative years in London, which was um, a real hotbed for music at the time. So uh, growing up, my father played, uh, my uncles played, and we lived in an area in the east end of London where my uncles lived across the road. And uh, so there was music, you know, at a very early age. Um, so I was familiar with music. I knew what the sound of music was like. But um, eventually at the age, I suppose, of nine or ten, my father tried to teach me and my sister, Angela, uh, the fiddle. And uh, we were going great guns with, uh, I remember the, the tune, it was Mershing Dirk and the song, the song here, you know, like the dum 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 And we are going great guns and... He thought he had us after one night, but when, we, when he came back the second night to teach uh, Jesus, we didn't know where we were, and he, he kind of he kind of gave it up as a bad job. But um, as luck would have it, a few a few years later, Brenda Moncare, a uh, county clairman who sadly passed away there only a few months ago, came to the area where we lived. I was, I suppose, a, a couple of years after that, and I was ten or eleven. And we used to go along to his classes, and it was great for the likes of my father and mother to have something in place where, you know, they could take us where it was actually traditional Irish music. Um, 
Brendan will care often told me like the uh, parents of Irish kids that were brought to him, you know, their, their parents' perception of Irish music would maybe country and western, Irish country and western. So, you know, we had a leg up that we were familiar with the music and that's where I started. Really, yeah. Did you have a sense, John, of being an immigrant? Did you have a sense of being an Irish person living in England? Uh, in the in the early years, you don't really. There was um, different nationalities, of course. There was there was uh, West Indian kids, uh, Maltese, Italians, Greeks. I don't. There was a. We were the Irish ones, though. So, um, like, if there was a game of football, the predominantly Irish, by the way, in the Catholic schools, of course, maybe ninety odd percent. If we had a game of football, and the football player would be Ireland against the rest of the world. That was it, and you and you didn't want to be any on any other team, only the Irish team, you know. So that's the way. That's how that was. Yeah. Were, were, were the Irish very dirty? <laughs> well, there was a there was a lot of us there, you see. <laughs> but um, no, I've I've been thinking about this quite for just lately. I've been asked about that Irishness and. Um, Having, I suppose, the Irish music, I, I always felt Irish, you know, myself. Um, but a lot of my counterparts who grew up in England didn't and didn't see any need to be Irish. Even their parents were Irish. I mean, I think it's, you, you notice it, say, in the soccer over there, how many Irish, you know, uh, players, Irish, what would you say, descent players, you know, they tug out for England all the time. So, um there seems to be kind of a psychological uh, thing if you're born in England. It's easier to go and be English, put it that way. Yeah. You know, safe face. I chatted to uh, Pauline Keneally recently, and, yeah. she, and she mentioned Brendan Mulcair, who taught her. But she had this wonderful sense of the Irish community being so close-knit because of the music and because of the dancing, and then it just opened up so many social doors for her as well. Did you have that same experience? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, a lot of Catholic clubs, as they called them, but they were all Irish clubs, you know, in, in around the city of London. Pauline grew up in Bedford, and I'm sure it was even stronger there, you know, the Irish community. It would be slightly smaller. London was very, very spread out. And they're all different little um, pockets, like uh, in London, huge Irish communities. And I think it was the largest outside of Ireland, uh, Probably still is, you know. That, that was the go-to place that was easy, rather than going to America. Like it was just a hop, skip, and a jump, really. Although it seemed a long way away that time growing up. You know, the trip to Ireland was a big trip. You'd get the boat train, and my parents were from the west of Ireland. Uh, my father from Boyle, and my mother, a Galway woman from Out Connemara. So, you know, it used to be a really long journey. We'd leave, say. Euston Station at maybe nine o'clock in the evening to get a boat at three o'clock from Hollyhead, and my mother would not pay for the children. Like we'd be just, we'd have to sneak on board the, the ferry. That was the way it was. Um, and you just run up the gangplank, you'd be on like they wouldn't bother. And, uh, so you do three hours on the ferry, three and a half hours or whatever it was, land into Dublin, I suppose, at half seven or eight in the morning. Then you'd have to get the trains to go away. That was another three hours, maybe, I think, at the time. And then we'd be met by my uncle, and it was another hour's drive out to where my mother came from. So, you know, you'd be in America today, <laughs> or the West Coast of it, maybe. It was a big trip. But, um, 
and uh, that time you know you'd never fly like people fly back and over all the time where well, they used to until the pandemic came in so um you know maybe a trip once a year now people who live in places they're back and over all the time and did you have a great fondness for the trips home john i did i used to absolutely love them and always wanted to live here in ireland you know it was a romantic notion but can you imagine coming from the east end suddenly we're on a farm in connemara where there was donkeys which were our horses we play cowboys and indians and you know it's like absolute heaven um uncle my uncle would take us out fishing and the curragh and catching mackerel and pollock and uh it just i just couldn't understand why my parents were living in england you know that of course <laughs> but i had to make a living like so that was you know so when when did you uh, i mean uh, when, when did you move to ireland did you i mean you're a full-time musician now was that always a goal or did it when did that when did that transition happen did you work at other things before moving home yes as a young man i was a carpenter used to do carpentry work on building sites and the like you know housing projects um and i played my music more recreationally like there was always sessions to be had in london in pubs paid sessions uh, where we'd um, mainly, I suppose, the weekends, but there was loads of those. And I, I was involved in playing in pubs, at, pub gigs, we'll call them, because there weren't sessions like sitting around the table. There'd be three people being paid on the stage. And from about the age of six, 14, 15, I started to get asked to play in places. So that was the way I was playing. Um, I, I had a mind for playing professionally, but Never really had the opportunity. At one stage, we had a little band in London, and uh, I had notions about the band. Um, the band, by the way, was called Schlieff Lucra. And uh, it consisted of um, a man from Schlieff Lucra who named the band. And uh, his name was Mike Casey. He was the guitar player. And he was a great man to get gigs, you know. What I want a good band? No, I don't. You know, he'd be telling the landlord. And uh, Brian Rooney, the fiddle player, was part of that band, as was a great flute player called Michael Hines, who comes from County Clare, and myself playing banjo with them. So we used to do the pub scene, and I always felt the band deserved maybe to be heard outside of that, you know, but um, lads were working, and it wasn't really for them, you know, I don't think. Um, but that was, you know, uh, it wasn't until I moved to Ireland that I, I became professional with that music. And I didn't really set out to do that until I made a recording that was popular uh, on banjo called The Cat That Ate The Candle. And that kind of opened a load of doors for me and played a bit of fiddle on that. It's picked up then by Shanaki Records and they were mad about me fiddle playing. So I kind of went from a banjo player to a fiddle player overnight. You know, <laughs> I, came, I came out as a fiddle player and I felt better about myself. Yeah. yeah. So was the banjo first then, John? Was that your first uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, that was a token track I did on the fiddle. You know, I was, I, was getting, I was getting more confident on the fiddle, but I still didn't regard myself as a fiddle player. I was just more confident on the banjo. I could pick it up and felt very, very at home playing my music. But then, you know, once the fiddle thing, I think when I moved to Ireland, I got concentrated more on it. I was living up around not far from 
one of the hotbeds of Sligo fiddle playing, you know, Gurchin, and I, I like that music. Um, looked into it a lot and used to try and pretend I was Paddy Caloran in the morning and try and copy his attacking style. And before I knew where I was, my bowing had improved and, you know, I was getting uh, much more fluent with the fiddle. And after the recording, then I was asked would I do a fiddle album. And uh, I couldn't refuse that. And I was playing loads at the time. So I uh, just found myself playing more fiddle, really, than banjo professionally. Yeah. Was was that a different time, John, when a record deal was kind of a thing that had a... Well, had commercial opportunity, but also had kind of professional opportunity. Absolutely. Um, You know, it was a real lucky break for me as an aspiring musician to be picked up by Shanaki Records. Um, Like all my hero fiddle players have recorded them, like Frankie Gavin, Tommy Peoples, Andy McGann, all these great fiddle players. And then suddenly I was chosen to be one of their recording artists and got a three-album deal. So then their, their base, of course, was in the States, although they sold their product worldwide. And, uh, you know, your name, my name got out there as, as a fiddle player, and it was a golden opportunity. And next thing I've been being invited to Milwaukee Festival comes to mind, where I met you guys at, at the festival. But this was in the earlier years. You know, I was invited out to a big festival like that. And, um, well, many people told me how they got me into the festival. You know, they, they put a word in for me. That was quite funny. <laughs> and once you play that festival, other festivals, you know, it's a good showcase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm curious when you were with the Schlieve Lucre band and, and you, you had an eye to it becoming bigger, Did you f- could you see your route to, to market a, a band that was in London at that time? And I, I asked that in the context of, well, let's talk kind of pre-pandemic, that if you were a young band in Ireland and you said, guys, let's put a band together, and then you knew that if you did a couple of showcases and you did Temple Bar Trad Festival and you got over to Milwaukee, that, you know, there was a very obvious way to make it into, potentially make yeah. it into a, com- a commercial outing. Was that even clear with, with Sleeve Lucre? I know we're, we're going back a little bit. It's easy. It's easier to look look at it now, but certainly that time, you know, if you want to look at the world market, people weren't going to look to London for a for an Irish band. They're going to look to Ireland, and so therefore, like Stockton's Wing were a great band that time. They're similar instrumentation. Uh, now Stockton's Wing did go at it full time, but uh, no, like there was a lot of music being played in places like Germany, but Germans wouldn't think about they wouldn't know about the Irish music scene in London. So therefore, they'd go straight to Ireland where the bands were coming up. All those great bands we know about, the Dan and Planksley, you know, they, and they were at it full time. But I just think on the world market, nobody was going to look to a London Irish band. You know, that's all where we played. Like there was no, no other opportunities for us. Yeah. Is there some, yeah. is there some story about uh, that you had to record one particular reel on all three of your Shanaki albums? Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. 
Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. There it is. That was, um, that was a tune called the Sligo Mate. What's the story with that? Because it's very unusual, right? That's that's. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I I spent the year in Australia in uh, 1983, and uh, a good friend of mine. He used to come back to London. He he lived in Australia a lot. He was from Connemara. A man called Jim Philbin. And he was from a place called Coronamona. And uh, when Jimmy had come to London, but he'd stay for many, many months. He had family in London and he could get, you know, he'd work while he was there. And of course, he loved London for the music scene. So at some stage, uh, he said, would you come out to Australia? I said, I'd love to. You know, I was 21 at this stage. And Jimmy made it happen anyway. So I was staying, um, staying with Jim at the time. And uh, he used to play the Sligo Made in the key of E minor, but he never quite, he never quite got it, but he was always at it. But I stole it off Jim Philbin there and then, and uh, that was it. I mean, I, I loved playing it in that game. You know, it opened up a op uh, different mindset. And uh, when I recorded the, cat, the, the Candle, I put that tune down of Jim Philbin's. So I called it the Connemara version of the Sligo Made. And when Shanaki Records picked that up, a man by the name of Dan Collins, he just absolutely loved it. And uh, that was my ticket to playing the fiddle. But Dan wanted the exact version that I played on the cat at the candle. And I'm not that type of musician. I have to, I feel the music like as I, as I play along, you know, it reveals itself to me. So I, I can't just repeat exactly what I did before. You know, that's a different type of musician. So I had to stab it on one of the records that I did for him. I think it was the second, second record. And, it was close, but he just it just wasn't the way I did it before. So I, I think he actually bounced the the cat that had the candle onto another record of his, you know, that uh, got onto the company, which was Chloe Conacher from Colorado, who has my cat that had the candle now. So that's the story behind it. It was a stolen tune, like like they all are, you know. Fair <laughs> game. That's really interesting. Would you talk a little bit, John, about? Uh... What you mentioned there about the tune revealing itself, I think that's a, that's a very short sentence, but I think it means an awful lot. I'm really interested to know what you mean by that. Um, 
I suppose musical ideas come to me while I'm playing, uh, variations. Um, it's, uh, it's something I've acquired over years and years of listening to other musicians. And I did use the word steel. So when you're a young fellow growing up in London, there was a lot of very creative players um, that go around the tunes so very individually. You know, they might play the same tune, but they'd have little little takes on it, just little variants. And I, I as a young lad growing up, I could hear all this, you know, and I, I copy maybe the what they do, like with the Duke of Leinster or something, people like Roger Sherlock or whoever. The great Thimbar Dwyer, I used to um, listen, I, had, I had access to Thimbar every now and again and it could sit in with him and I could follow like what he was doing. So eventually I had a good ear for a variation. But I started to initially, I suppose, copy what they were doing. And then, you know, you I found like that some of the variations that they did, you could apply it or semi-apply it to other tunes. And before I knew where I was, I was... I had, a, I had this creativity going on in, in the, um, the simple dance tunes in particular. And um, so when you play those time-honored tunes, things like the Sligo Maid, you know, you've, you know all, I remember the move Sean Maguire did in the tune, you know, I can't think what it is now, but I could put that in into my minor version, if you like, and... Uh, nobody had heard it before, but I knew where it came from. It's a bit like when you hear about Tommy Potts borrowing from maybe popular music when he was a young fellow. People think, oh, this is awesome what he's doing, but it was quite a simple song maybe he'd heard growing up that he managed to weave into, you know, a dance tune. So I don't know if that sort of answers your question, but... Hmm. Where, do you, uh, where do you sit then in terms of, uh, we'll say honoring the tradition of traditional Irish music. And I, I understand that's kind of a difficult question because, you know, where do you set the parameters for exactly what is traditional Irish music? Um, are you how, how far are you are you willing to push variations? Yeah, that's a great question. And because it is a taste thing in, at the end of the day, you know, it's a, my taste could be different to somebody else's. Uh, how far do I want to push it? Well, say Sean Maguire was an absolutely gifted musician who could push variation to the outer limits altogether. You know, that wasn't what attracted me to Sean Maguire's playing. It was actually when he, it was the, you know, the opposite of that. It was when he actually knuckled into some of the great tunes and was more subtle with his variations that I was more attracted to, say, that part of Sean Maguire's playing. Um, you know, maybe maybe there's time now for um, within the Irish music that there's there's so many different types of it at the minute. But should we just take say the music of Paddy Cronin, who was a great Kerry fiddler player? You know, um, that to me is traditional Irish music when somebody like him plays. Um, then you had before him, you had people like Michael Coleman that played the same music, but it was very, very detailed and lots of variation. That to me too is very creative and almost sophisticated traditional Irish music. So, you know what I mean? Like you've got variations and micro variations within the variation. You know, it's it never ending. 
Um, and it, and lots of people, maybe they can't hear what's going on. I'm, I'm really lucky at the minute. I'm working with, actually, I've got a, a lesson with this pupil of mine in, in Ohio, and she's a young woman who's just come into the music and maybe learned to play the Silver Spear in a local session and is, was really happy with herself playing it. And then I, I showed her little um, secrets and shortcuts within the tune. And uh, she's, Jesus, she's amazing the way she's, it's opened up like the possibilities of what can be done within the simple structure of a, a tune. You know, it's, um, you know, <laughs> you've got, if you've got all day, we can keep going. I know, it's, I, but it's wonderful, isn't it? Because when you're become very um, kind of knowledgeable, I guess, or, Oh, fay with the intricacies of Irish music, then micro variations can mean an enormous amount. Yeah, and the the usually subtle variations are usually what what I find so attractive. Not the big showcase, um, you know, in your face variation that a lot of people apply. They might apply it to other tunes, you know. It's just little subtle variations that I find uh, really nice. I'll just show you here. I've got a fiddle there. Um. <laughs> so the, the silver spear, you know? This girl learned the silver spear. You know, that's kind of a standard version. But I was, I was showing a, a man by the name of Lado Burn. You know, he had a few lovely moves, kind of this kind of thing. Now, the little genome. Stuff like that, you know, it's more workshoppy, I know. But, but those are the things I find attractive, you know, in, in Irish music. Um, and um, I would like solo playing greatly, you know, to, to get the individualistic interpretation of music out of the musician. Sometimes, like bands, are loaded brilliant to, to hear as a collective. It's really the the, uh, the solo musician that I'd um, I love to see what they do with the, the given tune, you know, yeah. see, see what they're finding. Do you do, uh, I, I'm thinking of Martin Hayes particularly, who I think he famously talked about going up into the attic of his house and playing one tune like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times to find those tiny little moments in each tune. Do you do, you do that kind of thing? Oh, I would, yeah. I'd, um, I could spend uh, ages on a tune. And as I said, sometimes little things reveal themselves to me and, you know, a little Often it's a wrong note that you're going for. Like, you're not going for it, but you hit on it, and you think, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> let's backtrack." And uh, that can be the key to an absolute lovely, lovely. Uh, but yeah, I, I like taking one tune and playing it around many times, and seeing, trying not to overcook it, but at the same time enjoying where it's taken me. And um, you know, Martin's great at that too. He's great space in his music. Uh, he really believes in the tradition he came from. So that shows when he plays. You know? 
Yeah. Do you think, um, have you been able to find the same level of expression on banjo versus fiddle? I personally would say that you can, but I would be quite jealous of the real emotion and dynamic and lyrical ability on fiddle versus banjo. Um, I think that the fiddle has probably got the edge on the banjo for most, you know, for musicality, just because of its, um, like in most musics, the violin is, it's got such a tradition about it. Like when, when I learned to play the banjo, I was copying fiddle players and flute players and box players. There wasn't a tradition of banjo playing. You know, there's a couple of people that played the banjo in my, when I was coming up. My, my father was a nice banjo player, but he very much played with a bit of clarity. Like he was no um, fancy Dan on it or anything like that, but he had lovely timing and his music was proper, proper Irish music. Um, there was Mick O'Connor who played around London. Once again, a good good player, as there was Liam Farrell. So I got to hear these people play banjo. But uh, Barney, then, you know, we got records of the Dubliners, and Barney was pushing the boat out a bit with uh, more uh, intricate banjo playing. But I think that the fiddle is probably, the pipers might give me a clip around the ear, but I think it's the best instrument for I- Irish music out there. And um, I, I've played with so many great players who play all different instruments. But when we get to the bar at late in the evening or wherever, it's usually fiddle players they talk about, you know. And this would be great flute players now and great box players, but they'd inevitably talk about, you know, the great fiddle players. So um, it's a very expressive instrument, the fiddle. Uh, I, I feel I can never get, well, whenever you get close to something, there's always something a little bit further out there that needs a lot of work on, as I'm sure there is on the banjo. But um, but see, I when I play the banjo, I I like to get as much of the the traditional music on it that I can find. It's not it's not so much about technique for me. It's about you know the the tunes and trying to find the subtleties in them. Um, you know and uh, if. If I if I know too much on it, I might miss the essence. I teach a lot of banjo. I teach down in University of Limerick, and I, I I get all sorts of great banjo players coming to me that would lose and find me technically, technically, you know. But um, but then they they don't really have much music behind it, you know. They're great technicians. But, um, I, I'm trying to show them like <laughs> I'm trying to trip them up basically. So I take the troubles away from them and tell them to play for me. You know, play some music for me. Like, let, what, what can you do there? Because oftentimes they develop a habit of, of traveling in the same place at the same time. And I, I know it's coming. And it's like, oh, please, please, please don't travel there again. You know, let do something. So that's, that's, that's the, you know, the, to answer a simple question, I think the fiddle has got more uh, capacity for Irish traditional music at the type of level and that, that I like to hear, you know. Mm. But uh, there's great banjo players out there. It really is. We're playing some great music, and uh, it's just it's, it's never been better, actually. Really good. Do you do you think that the banjo is still because it's so new in Irish music? Um, 
that it's it's still finding its place. And I love what you what you're talking about there in terms of, and you know, youthful banjo players of which uh, I was one, you know, not that long ago, hopefully. But the and I think of all youthful musicians, the 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 um the draw to putting as much into a tune as you possibly can, and particularly on banjo, like filling it full of triplets and filling up trebles and chords and all that kind of stuff. And that there's just a natural maturity that happens in music where you come to understanding that the tune comes first and then the ornamentation comes afterwards. Uh, but that the banjo, because of its infancy within the tradition itself, has a ways to come, even an understanding that it has a place expressing a tune before the flash. Yeah, the banjo is a baby in our music. You know, it's an absolute baby. When you think really, should we just say about the 70s, it started to appear as a, you know, as a melody instrument of note. Uh, so that's not that long ago. And it, it, it gained in popularity. I wonder why. Because it's attractive, you know, it's an attractive sound. Um, and I do, I do think it's still a baby in the music. You know, we haven't got a banjo tradition that we can go to to, to say, God, you know, what somebody did in the, a lot of the banjo music that was recorded, say, in the 78 era, was a lot of it was rhythmical, chordal. Um, you know, there wasn't that, um, I would just say, sophistication in it. You know, it was very much a play-along instrument. It was almost an accompanying instrument. Whereas now, People are finding all sorts of lovely um, music in the banjo. Uh, it's, it's never been better, really. You just have to be careful, no more than the Bowron. You know, the way the Bowron got so sophisticated in itself and people could do every conceivable um, trick with it. And they've, they've now been doing this on the banjo, but it's not necessarily conducive to, to, the, to our music. You know, even that it's, it's clever. But uh, John Joe John Joe Kelly is a great baron player, and I did something with John Joe recently. And we had to have a chat about this type of thing, I suppose. Growing up, he was actually growing up in the UK, and John Joe was a great fan of the great baron player Johnny Ringo McDonough. And when John Joe was coming up, he told me this one that he met John, he met Johnny Ringo, you know, and Johnny Ringo was astounded at his ability. You know, he said. Uh, God, he says, you're doing things that I just couldn't dream of, you know? He said, there's, there's something he said I can do, he said, that you you can't do. John Joe going, what's that, man? What's that? You know, and he said, well, he said, I can keep time, you know? <laughs> so, I can keep time, man, I can keep time. So he starts playing along, you know, and the next thing, before he knew where he was, he'd done about six trebles. No, he says, the musician just went, dunch, dunch, dunch. you know, and it's a bit like that, you know, if you overcomplicate it, you know, I mean, um, <laughs> I yeah. know what it is. I just can't explain it. Yeah, my brother Fergal famously said to uh, our guitar player, David, one time he said, Dave, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a reverse that into some sort of thing. You know, I, I do it because I can, you know, so heck <laughs> Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. 
I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business. And I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I, I do think the banjo is very curious because, you know, if you, you you talk there about not having that repository of traditional banjo to to look back at, that when you look at the banjo in its formative years in Ireland, you're talking about Barney McKenna, which was largely kind of ballad based, and then yeah. Stockton's Wing, which was almost like rock and roll, and then Jerry O'Connor, which brought in this big bluegrass element, and that they were the three main players for a certain period of time and that it's really only in the last what maybe 10 or 15 years that you have a a swathe of albums that are being recorded by banjo players exactly the the other man who i used to like to listen to but you couldn't hear him that well but he had a lovely little to his banjo because it was in the kilfenora kaylee bands they had a lovely banjo jimmy ward was the man and if, if you listen to the old Kirfanora, there's a lovely lilt. You can almost see the clear crowd dancing to, 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 along with his rhythm, you know. But, yeah, you're dead right. Those were the banjo players that recorded. And um, Charlie Piggott, of course, came along then a bit with Dr. Dan, and they, they introduced the banjo. But that's, that was its that was the start of it, really, of, of recorded music. And um, there's great female uh, recording artists today. A lovely way of playing banjo you know uh, many of them it's just so many your 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 own daughter maggie included yeah maggie picked, i was in the states one year and I, I found one of those small vegas and i brought it back to her and she started tipping along uh, she's found a few things herself you know just there was no there's no tradition much of accompaniment in banjo accompaniment and uh she found that and next thing she's accompanying herself singing songs and um it's just very much her own thing you know there's she can't go to anyone to learn how to do it like she just got to figure it out so it is a fledgling instrument yeah yeah did you ever have any pushback john uh, because you were playing the banjo in irish music good question uh i never experienced any anything like that until i moved to ireland that inherited um what would we call it 
musical racism. <laughs> but no, when I when I was growing up in London, oh man, they were just so welcoming, all the great musicians. Um, oh, I tell I tell you a bit of a minute, but then you know, if you're a banjo player, you're a banjo. You're a flute player. There was none of this in. This American inheritance of, you know, that's where that came out of, you know, the banjo being uh, a poor relation or whatever, or closure is, you know. And sometimes the accordion falls foul of this, these type of jokes. But, um, but when when I recorded the uh, cat that ate the candle, you know, I was kind of proud of myself. Like I thought, oh man, this is, and I loved uh, Brian McGrath accompanied me and. I grew up listening to piano accompaniment, and geez, this guy knew knew so much about it. You know. Anyway, the album was done, and I started to bring it around. And I went to never forget going to Clatter Records in Dublin. I just got a bit of a knockback from Gay Lynn. You know, they said that they weren't interested. You know? So my next meet was with Clatter Records, and I went into them, and I was I was basically told, yeah, you're a good player, love it's it's the wrong instrument. You know, that that's a fact. You know. So I was a bit dejected, and I was walking down uh, Grafton Street, and there was this fella, he was playing the banjo. He was really good, like, but I, I just wanted to, part of me wanted to go and say, look, you want to you wanna throw that in the liffy, mate, and get yourself a set of venom pipes or something, because you're going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, gladly we persevered, and here we are today, you know. But but I never experienced that, that meant, mental kind of psychological thing about the banjo. No, until until I came to Ireland, then I started to hear, oh, he's a banjo player, you know, all this. Mm. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a joke, you know. We, we have to we have to get over that. I don't want to start a banjo movement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a jokey element to, to a lot of that, John, but do you think there was actual, uh, as you said, inherited racism toward the banjo uh, because of its American legacy or its slavery legacy. Do you think part of it was that in Ireland? I'd like to think it was more tongue-in-cheek, you know, rather than um, any underlying anything else, you know. The, um, I mean, other instruments in the wrong hands could be desperate, you know, the, the beautiful little... Incident, uh, innocent concertina, you know, it looks so delicate and everybody loves it, and yet it's an absolute, you know, it's a monster like in the wrong hands, you know, and these chords that can be that can be played on it. Um, the Yilan pipes, which I loved and still love, but the efficiency of the new sets of pipes, I don't know if you've sat in with any pipers lately, but like, <laughs> take your ears off, like that. They're so good, these pipes. Like they're almost like war pipes now, you know. So, you know, we all we all heard about the banjo being being allowed in, but it's it's up to the player, you know. I mean, you have to be able to tickle the banjo like when when needed, you know. And uh, the good players know how to to hold their plectrums and you know use the right amount of um, force or less force as needed you know you, it's nice to be adaptable with, with the spectrum that you get different tones you know yeah yeah i think i think a certain amount of that just again speaks to the infancy infancy of the instrument in irish music that there wasn't a great legacy of good uh, technique teaching for banjo players so a lot of it was 
you know, pick it up and then due to a lack of technique, perhaps kind of hitting it really hard. And then that just created this scenario where he had a lot of sessions where it was like, oh, God, not the banjo player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then he might not have had any rhythm either. Yeah. No, it's true. And, and an interesting exercise in the, a few years ago where in UL, many of the uh, students were told to take up the second instrument. And uh, I got the job of looking after them. There was for the banjo. And there was, there was at least six to eight now people who never played a banjo before and they came to me and I gave them all how to hold the plectrum, you know, where to position their fingers, uh, just standard type of thing. But I have to say they all came back and held it, held the plectrum how they wanted to hold it. You know, so, you know, to try and teach it, like it, it was uncomfortable to them, you see, even though I could see that they were never going to play with any fluency, they might be crossing the strings, you know, diagonally or wrong anyway. You know, wrong to get the nice tones and stuff. But they they just did it their own way. And I, I used to say, yeah, but you you, you know, you're not going to get very far holding it that way. You know, they might have you know all their fingers holding it or three of their fingers and. So um, it was a really interesting exercise, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, you, you talked about loving uh, being a solo player and the ability to, you know, really explore a tune and explore the music. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, At The Racket, which was a, just a huge band for me. I, I adored At The Racket. I thought there was so much fun in that music. And fun is the word that jumped out of me above everything else. And devilment. Thanks, and uh, but yeah, and that's that's really what it was about for anybody that played with at the racket. You know, um, was it Archie McGlynn's uh, playing with the band that really just puts a smile on your face? Well, it was like that for us. Like we'd, we'd be glowing for about two hours, you know, playing uh, the music. Um, yeah, at the time I, I, I was doing a lot of solo playing myself, and I fancied myself playing a lot. Brian McGrath was just said, "Just be some." bit of crack now to do something a bit different because a lot of the bands that were coming out you know they were kind of same instrumentation maybe as either the Dallin or the Buffy band who were the two main bands so we like growing up in London you see I had heard saxophone being played in dance band my, my father played the sax and uh, used it mainly for waltzes in um, in Cayley bands but he could he could rattle out a few tunes like being a flute player. You know he got to know how to do it. So as luck would have it, we we met uh, Seamus O'Donnell from Sligo, and he was great at the sax. You know, so um, just put the band together and uh, delved a lot into the music of the twenties. People like James Morrison, uh, those guys had lovely band dance type music that really suited for banjo and they'd use saxophones and maybe clarinets that you know of course about the work of the Flanagan brothers they were they were great and they had those lovely humorous songs and so we kind of looked at that material uh, we never copied it 
but we certainly were inspired by it and tried to emulate it the best you can, you know. So, um, and with with the likes of the sacks, you know, it opened up other doors. We, you know, we found things that worked for us, just great old tunes. Remember Fred Finn's reel being played by Seamus as a sax kind of solo, and it was it was quite a re revelation at the time. Yeah, pure fun, pure fun. Uh, pure development. I remember I, I I was buried in the garden from Claire. I remember thinking, wow, oh, yeah. that it took some neck to put that on an, on an album. <laughs> Every man's got the finest plan you've ever seen now. Pardon me now. Every day, one of them will say, Sheila Green now. You'll see now. But late last night, when the moon was bright, I asked her if she'd share. Me joy and sorrow, me color, and tomorrow I'll be buried in the girl from Claire. Oh man, yeah, we, 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 we're like the Dubliners, we were trying to get banned off top of the pot. <laughs> <laughs> did it just run its course, John? Yeah, it did really. Um, it was such fun. I mean, we never really packed it in, but we just sort of bit by bit it filtered out. Um, it was funny that band, it went down great in Ireland, you know, everybody got it, you know, of the Irish communities, maybe in in the UK, we did a few things over there. But you say the likes of Europe, they just would not get it like. The States, I was I had a record deal with um Chanaghy at the time, around the time we had the band, but they wouldn't look at it. You know, they just did not associate I, I think in Europe they got used to people like Planks, the the Buffy band. And to see brass in a traditional Irish band that it, it you know I just couldn't explain it sort of that this did happen like in the 20s and that and um so they never bought on to it you know but in ireland here man if we went into county clare they'd be up dancing like you know it used to be great buzz they really got it um, american criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind american scandal and american history tellers every week you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever craven and cruel criminals fraud theft murder and worse whatever the case whoever the criminal you don't know the whole story until now the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me tell me about your, your most recent uh, project, the Wavy Bow Collection. Yeah, the Wavy Bow. We managed to get the Wavy Bow done during lockdown, and it's a collaboration with my son, James. Um, um, in a way, it is lots of stuff that at the racket used to look at but it's it's a bit broader than that we went in with a couple of fiddles trying to find space for each other and play a couple of fiddles we're both great um fans of the music of the sligo greats and we touched on some of the, their music 
And these albums, they have a way of just uh, a bit like the tune for me, revealing themselves. But I brought the banjo in one day, and next thing we had a couple of banjo fiddle tracks. And I play, I like to play some gentle tunes on the tenor guitar. We, we introduced that, had a few tunes in mind. And um, the biggest job with the album then we found was we had a lot of things going on on the album, different sounds. And to get them to sort of, in mastering stage, to sit side by side, you know, that the album flowed, that it wasn't like, um, how would you say, a collection, well, call it a collection because of that, but um, I can't think of the word now. But anyway, we, we got it done to our liking, and uh, that's it, really. Another one bites the dust. Yeah, well <laughs> you, uh, you, I assume you have a good... You, you have a good relationship with your kids because I think to play, to play with your son and play with your daughter in various different bands. I mean, that that takes. Uh, there's a lot of trust there, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's great uh, playing with the both of them. You know, they both bring different things to the table. Um, myself and Maggie fight all the time, but that's <laughs> that's okay too. You know, but we. We we gigged. Oh man, we we did some lovely gigs in America. I was I don't know the banjo three there the year we were there. But anyway, we did Milwaukee. Maggie, Donald, Lovey, and myself. Then we did a little sort of West Coast tour. You know, it's great traveling along down the highway with your daughter and getting the head eaten off you every now and again, and going through customs. And I being young, uh, she didn't give a but I knew we could be sort of deported back into America from Canada and all that, but she just didn't didn't see any of that, you know. And trying to get on aeroplanes, and she'd be pushing it like with the luggage and everything. And I know, like that, you know, you can't get on the plane. But I remember getting stopped in Chicago this day, and uh, you know, this woman anyway wasn't let. Letting her on, you know, with, with all the big bags she had and everything. And Maggie just turns around me, that dump, you know. <laughs> I said, I've been telling you for a half an hour, you can't go. That's it. Oh. Oh, I'll tell you some good ones, they're not really for the for the airwaves, but um, yeah, it's great. And uh, likewise, James, been playing away with him since he's since he could play, you know, and he's my go to person really to. Um, if I have any musical problems, you know, mm. we, we can share them out. And uh, we follow largely a lot of the same type of music as well. Do you, do you enjoy touring, John? I do, yeah. I love it. Um, I don't tour arduously, you know. It's just periodically I do tours. I'm not like a guy who'd be on the road for six months of the year. You know, so it's very doable for me, and I, I certainly didn't suffer from burnout because I didn't even start touring really till I was, I'd say, well into my thirties. You know, I'm only at it really about twenty years at the touring type of playing. You know, even though I was playing, so I don't feel burnt out, and I don't do that much of it. But, but at the same time, when you look back, we've played everywhere, like you know, from Japan, Australia, New Zealand, America. A little bit in Europe, not that much, but um, of course, you know, wherever, wherever I'm invited, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have a favourite audience? Um, it's hard to beat America, really, because they're so enthusiastic for um, ah. But then, having said that, God, what what a trip I had in Japan! It was just absolutely 
stunning like to uh just couldn't you know you couldn't do enough for them or the gratification you received um, you know it's just great and then there's something about playing a good gig in ireland where people really understand what you're at you know when that goes well like uh i'm two gigs with matt malloy we do a duo and trio things and sometimes those gigs are like they just take off i don't we don't even know why they find whatever they find in them but like they, they sort of elevate as you go along i suppose musicians are just teeing off each other so anywhere audiences are great aren't they <laughs> if i can get an audience i'm happy put it that way yeah are you always hatching a plan john do you have uh, you know have you more projects in mind or did they, did they just kind of uh happen naturally uh you you, you have to be one one little uh thing i've always wanted to do and it seems it's going to come together this year is funny enough it's from my london days growing up i've always been interested in the music of banjo and pipes i always loved that sound of course it's not that much difference that a banjo saxophone banjo box you know the reed and the banjo so um i've been invited to do a week's residency in the hawkswell in sligo with a piper and uh michael mcgoldrick over in manchester is going to come over and we've been talking about this at the bar for ages the banjo and pipes and he plays banjo as well so he knows what i'm talking about he would have he would have heard like felix boran playing with banjo players in, in Manchester. And when I was growing up, Tommy McCarthy from Clare and Mick O'Connor at this session. And I just find the, uh, I just find it exotic, the sound, you know. And I want to play that music and maybe record. So that's a project that's hopefully happening. If we can get a little bit of movement this year, we're going to try and get together and, uh, you know, try that one out and see how it, see how it goes. It doesn't get any better than Mike McGoldrick. Uh, he's a great lad, and he, he's he's a masterful musician, of course. But um, more importantly, like we just get on so well when we meet at, <laughs> at the bar. You know, <laughs> these things are very important. You know, that uh, there's a little bit more. You know, of course, I know his background really well. It's just same as my own. You know, when I go over, particularly to Manchester, meet like the likes of his father, who comes from Galway, and likes his pint and is a musician himself you know i grew up with those guys and it means means a lot to me really to, to, to be in the company mm. have you missed the social scene in this last year john i i have really and truly i'm i'm still lucky like i, I teach in ul now it's 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 on a go slow shall we say we just go down once every once every three weeks during the semesters, but you do meet a few there and it's, it's healthy, but um, no, it's, it's totally gone, isn't it, by and large. So I've been doing a few things online, like I did this thing recently called Tea Time Treats, and I just played some of my own tunes of an evening, cup of tea in hand and all this, and, um, but the amount of people that got, got in touch, it was lovely, you know, I was, when when it went offline, I was almost um, you know, Jesus, well, no one getting in touch again, you know. <laughs> but all, all our friends who could tune in from all over the world, so it's kind of um, nice to keep in touch with people. Lovely, John. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure uh, chatting oh, to you. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing you on the road again. And the one thing I'll say 
is that, you know, I hold you in the highest stature in terms of your fiddle playing and your banjo playing. And as a musician that has, you know, a really good root in Irish traditional music, and I'm always gratified is the wrong word and even impressed isn't the right word, but humbled when the likes of you come up after a wee banjo three gig and say, I love what you guys are doing because it's it's greater than the music. It's like a very genuine uh, warmth in relation to other Irish musicians that are doing well. And I think that the the entire community needs lots of people like you. There's lots of them, but it's it's just a lovely, lovely thing. So just take oh, the opportunity yeah. to thank you for that as much as anything. Oh, jeez, I love that band. I've, I've seen you rock it out a few times. I think um, you, for me, you're an extension of Four Men and a Dog, but you've, you've taken her up there even, you know, to to where it's gone, you know? Well, they were they were a huge influence. I'm going to talk to Gino uh, in a couple of weeks' time as well. I'm pretty excited about oh, that. He's yeah, a great he's character. Great. Yeah. yeah, I've got a project with him soon as well. So there you go. <laughs> wow, wonderful, wonderful, John. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And uh, you're welcome. Where can people find where, where can people find out about your music? What's the easiest way? I suppose. Well, oh God, there's probably websites with my name on them and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> uh, where to be found? Where to be found? John Carter Music. Put, type that one in and I'm sure my website will come up. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the book.